Let me just launch into the paper. In the middle of the 18th century, the eminent English particular Baptist theologian John Gill was visited by Samuel Davies. The purpose of the visit was to raise funds for the recently instituted College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton University. Gill warned Davies not to expect much from the English Calvinistic Baptist as a whole. In general, he said, they were unhappily ignorant of the importance of learning. This response by John Gill reveals much about the attitude of 18th century English particular Baptist on the subject of the education of ministers. What remains largely unknown, however, are the factors in the 17th century which produced this attitude of apathy. The education of ministers had become a topic of contention due to the rise of lay preachers among Baptists and other separatist groups in the 17th century. The English Puritans of the previous century had placed a high emphasis upon the education of ministers, but it was their twin emphasis upon the individual believer's personal experience and the importance of a regenerate church membership, which eventually led to an unexpected and unintended consequence. Richard L. Greaves has observed that for the lay people steeped in that teaching environment, it was, quote, a relatively short step from ascertaining the validity of the Puritan experience in others to judging the contents of sermons and to proclaiming the message itself. By the early 17th century, many unordained and uneducated Baptists, as well as other separatists, were indeed proclaiming the message. Richard Land, yes, that Richard Land, has noted in his Oxford dissertation on the doctrinal controversies among the 17th century English particular Baptists that by 1640, an aggressive scripture-quoting laity had emerged, especially in London, in London, exuding the assurance bred of the experimental work of grace within, and thus increasingly intolerant of clerical restraint. This development brought about a severe reaction in print by certain educated Puritan and Separatist clergy. Much of the writings of this topic, then, from the Baptist perspective, are the polemical responses to attacks upon their very existence from the elite clergy of their day. One example will suffice to demonstrate the disdain in which these early Baptists were viewed. In the year that Hercules Collins was born, 1647, an anonymous pamphlet was published in London titled Tub Preachers Overturned, which derided the uneducated and unordained lay preachers of the period in no uncertain terms. This piece, which named the names of certain, quote, illiterate, mechanic, nonsensical, cobbled Fustian tubbers provides a sense of the disdain with which the early uneducated preachers were viewed by their more educated contemporaries in the 17th century. Among those named in this pamphlet were prominent Baptists such as Praise God Barebones, Barebones a leather seller, Thomas Lamb, Lamb a soap boiler, Thomas Patient, Patience a tailor, and William Kiffin, Kiffin a glover. Uh, The author notes on the title page The anonymous author says that he doesn't give the first names or the Christian names of these individuals because it is questionable whether they have any. This work added insult to injury by deriding the separatist ministers with words such as, Yea, sir, in sober sadness you shall have more sense when your illiterate numbers learn to read. 
Then they'll love to write and speak sense when they cry up human learning and other external properties, as these unlearned rabbles account them. Till then, these volumes of necessity must increase with your numbers. You shall have fewer tales and more truths when you forget your lying mother tongue, as well as your Latin one. For take this for truth. So long as ye pray, preach, dispute, nonsense, lies, and those knaveries you are ashamed to own, in your own dialect they shall be repeated and thrown as dung in your face. And then shall you have more weightier reasons of the sun, when such moon calves shall be brought to the knowledge and love of God, and of his wisdom and truth, and to love and charity toward their brethren. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy and sun. This is but one example of many that might be given to demonstrate the condescending attitude of the university-educated ministers toward their lay-preaching contemporaries. The temple repaired, or an essay to revive the long-neglected ordinances of exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy for the edification of the churches and of ordaining ministers duly qualified by Hercules Collins, 1647-1702, is generally considered to have signaled a significant shift in the thought of English particular Baptists on the subject of the education of ministers. Just a word about who Hercules Collins is, in case there's anyone in the world who might not know who he is. He was the third pastor of London's oldest Baptist, Baptist church, a church which he pastored at Wapping for 26 years. Uh, Ernest Keevan, a later pastor, wrote in 1933 a 300-year history of that church, uh, which began with John Spilsbury as pastor. And so Hercules Collins is the third of the first three pastors of that church, John Spilsbury, John Norcott, and then Hercules Collins. And so at this point, I've got to insert here, plug number one. If you want more information on Hercules Collins, buy the book, uh, devoted to the service of the temple. It's available in the bookstore. That's plug number one, implying there's a plug number two. The significance of the temple repaired by Collins has been stated by the noted Baptist historian Leon Macbeth as having set the tone of Baptist emphasis upon education. The purpose of this paper is to explore whether the text of Hercules Collins' greatest and final work, The Temple Repaired, reflects a continuity or discontinuity of thought with the early to mid-17th century Baptists on the subject of the education of ministers. This purpose will be accomplished by an analysis of the two most important works dealing with the subject during the 17th century, beginning with Samuel Howe's The Sufficiency of the Spirit's Teaching Without Human Learning, and culminating with The Temple Repaired by Hercules Collins. Let's start with looking at Samuel Howe and the sufficiency of the Spirit's teaching. Samuel Howe was a pastor of an independent congregation. He himself had Baptist convictions, but he was in one of those churches that was of open membership. Samuel Howe's The Sufficiency of the Spirit's Teaching was first printed in 1639. This work was called by Walter Wilson a grand apology for ignorance. And it went through at least seven printings during the 17th century. Any survey of the controversy regarding the education of ministers in 17th century England must begin with an examination of the circumstances which led to the publication of the sufficiency of the Spirit's teaching without human learning by Samuel Howe. The publication of this work was the result of a direct challenge issued to Samuel Howe by John Goodwin, minister of the church at Coleman Street. Goodwin had previously emphasized the necessity of human learning for all those who would be preachers. An objection was raised by some present 
that human learning was not necessary and that Samuel Howe, who was by trade a cobbler, was an example of the unnecessariness of such learning. Goodwin was then challenged to send a text to Mr. Howe upon which he would preach to demonstrate his abilities apart from human learning. This was done. The text which was sent was 2 Peter 3.16. As one that in all his epistles speaks of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. We know why. There's no mystery why Goodwin would have chosen that text. Howe took the challenge and preached the sermon on that chosen text, and he brilliantly turned the text on Goodwin. And uh, we'll see that a little bit later, how he does that, which this sermon, which according to a recommend, uh, recommendatory epistle of the fifth edition of the published version of the sermon said, John Goodwin heard and finding it confounded his former thoughts was therefore greatly offended and said, ye have made a calf and danced about it. A great description of preaching. You made a calf and danced about it. This response from Goodwin caused the friends of Howe to urge him to preach the sermon again with a view to having it published. Although Howe consented and preached the sermon again, no one in London would print the sermon because of pressure exerted by Goodwin upon the printers. So a copy of Howe's sermon was sent to Holland where it was printed and then the books were brought back to London for distribution. The book, though, would gain popularity and would go through at least 16 printings and six editions over the next 200 years. And it became something of a classic, being championed by some and condemned by others. Among those who championed the sufficiency of the Spirit's teaching was the highly respected and influential Baptist, William Kiffin, who wrote a postscript to the 1655 printing. Kiffin commends the oft-persecuted Howe as one of whom the world was not worthy. Kiffin wrote as one who was thoroughly acquainted with the life and ministry of Howe. Listen to this description. Having before the death of this author been well acquainted with him and tasted that spirit of light and truth which God in his day did more than ordinary pour out upon him by which he was enabled to minister seasonable words to the refreshing of many weary souls and also to contend against those corruption and inventions which men brought into the worship of God raging like the mighty waters against all the servants of God which opposed them in the same I mean the power of the prelacy which ruled them in that day the weight of whose persecuting hand this author while he lived had his share and when he died not suffered by them to have that which they called Christian burial, but his friends were forced to lay his body in the highway as one who was numbered among the transgressors. But Kiffin's primary goal was not merely to commend the author, but to recommend to the reader the matter of this foregoing book. This recommendatory postscript remained in place in the subsequent printings throughout the 17th century and, in, and serves as an important indicator of just how representative Howe's views were among the 17th century English particular Baptists. The debate regarding the education of ministers was not, then, principally a d debate among Baptists, but between Baptists and those who desire to impose a requirement of education upon those who would endeavor to preach. William Kiffin summarized the bent, his word, of the sufficiency of the Spirit as being Quote, to advance the teachings of the Spirit of Christ in the unfolding of the mystery of the gospel to the hearts of men as the choice, keyword, as the choice revealer of that glory of truth to the soul which will change from glory to glory into its own likeness. In other words, that the Spirit of Christ is to be preferred as the means, above all other means, 
of understanding and explaining Scripture. Samuel Howe himself clearly stated in the title of his printed sermon that his purpose was to declare and demonstrate that the teaching of the Holy Spirit alone is sufficient for the understanding of God's Word. Against men such as John Goodwin, Howe argued specifically against the necessity of what he called human learning, a term which he defined as the knowledge of arts and sciences, diverse tongues, and much reading, and a persisting in these things, so as thereby to be made able to understand the mind of God in his word. That this, it is, this is it that I condemn from the word of truth, for being that by which any is made able spiritually to understand the mind of God, which the apostle saith, cannot be attained to by the words which man's wisdom teacheth, all which these excellencies are said to be. So that by human learning I do here understand that whereby certain men do excel and are far above and beyond other ordinary men. Human learning then was essentially defined by how as a university education, the knowledge of arts and sciences, diverse tongues, and much reading. This he opposed in as far as it was believed to give one an advantage in understanding the meaning of scripture. It's important to note, however, that Howe was not opposed in principle to human learning, but rather to the notion that human learning was necessary to properly understand the Word of God. Roger Williams, who, whom William Cathcart says probably learned soul liberty from Samuel Howe, says that Howe was a scripture-learned man, although without human learning. Nevertheless, Williams says that Howe honored human learning in its sphere and place. Evidence for this exists in Howe's own words. In response to the objection that by this all human learning seems utterly to be condemned, Howe stated, I answer that it follows not, because it is not to be allowed in this way, that therefore it is not of any use, for I do acknowledge it in itself to be a good thing, and good in its proper place. I say it is of good use, and so fit for statesmen, physicians, lawyers, and gentlemen, Yea, all men, so far as they can attain it, are as men beyond and above others that are without it. Yea, and beyond all excellencies that this world can afford. Howe's opposition was only when human learning was used as, quote, a help to understand the mind of God in the Holy Scriptures. Then it becomes a detestable filth, dross and dung in that respect, and so good for nothing but to destroy and cause men to err. Human learning had its place like fire. Keep it in the chimney... Howe said, and it serves as a good blessing of God for good and necessary uses. But let it once come into the roof of the house, and it destroys all because it's not in its proper place. This image applied to the use of human learning in the understanding of the gospel. To bring human learning to such a task would only result in the spoiling of the right understanding thereof. Howe further denied that he believed, as some apparently did, that those who had human learning could not understand the scriptures. He did not want to be guilty himself of the same kind of prejudice that was used against him. Neither for all this would I have any to conclude of me, as some affirm, that I hold all learned men to be excluded from the spiritual meaning of the word. God forbid. For though the apostle says not many of several ranks, yet he saith not there is none, but yet not many. There was one Joseph of Arimathea, one Nicodemus, one deputy Sergius Paulus, a prudent man. And divers of the priest. I think of what the, I believe, Countess Huntington said that she was saved by an M. Uh, scripture says not many, not not any uh, wise or wealthy are saved in First Corinthians one. 
How also acknowledge the benefit of a knowledge of languages, which he called tongues in the translation of scripture from one language to another. Otherwise, he said, quote, we that are unlearned could not come to have the letter of the word insofar there is a necessity of it for that use. What Howe denied, however, was that the person who could translate scripture would be ever the more able to understand the spiritual meaning of the word thereby. Thus, Howe is consistent throughout his sermon in his contention that human learning can never do for the interpreter of scripture while only the Holy Spirit of God can. Now, let's move to look at Hercules Collins and the Temple Repaired. The Temple Repaired is a classic manual on preaching which includes practical instructions for both hermeneutics and homiletics. This work attempted to fill a void in 17th century particular Baptist life in relation to the training of a new generation of ministers within the local church. Michael Haken has described the temple repaired as an eloquent plea for Calvinistic Baptist churches to serve as seminaries for aspiring pastors and preachers. Historically, this work provides rich insights into the state of the ministry among English particular Baptists at the turn of the 18th century. Practically, much of the advice contained in this work is still the content of hermeneutic and homiletic classes today. This is a work that deserves to receive a fresh reading today. Plug number two. I'm working on producing an edited version of the Temple Repaired to uh, make available today. It deserves it. Uh, And so if you know a publisher, tell them that it does. Ironically, when the fifth edition of Samuel Howe's The Sufficiency of the Spirit's Teaching was published in 1704, it was printed by the same printer as Collins' work, William and Joseph Marshall, and it contained an advertisement on the back for Hercules Collins' The Temple Repaired. The irony is that most Baptist historians would consider Collins and Howe to be at opposite ends of the spectrum in their positions on the education of ministers. A closer examination of the two texts, however, reveal striking similarities. Not only did these two volumes share the same printer, they were also produced out of sermons preached on special occasion. The occasion of Howe's sermon has already been seen earlier in this paper. The heart of Collins' book was first preached as a sermon which was delivered at a meeting designed for the promoting spiritual gifts in the churches of Christ. Hercules then expanded his sermon for publication on the basis of three desires. And, and by the way, I have in my study of the temple repaired, I think isolated where that original sermon is. And it's very interesting. I've seen my footnotes here. Uh, the reasons why I believe it is where I say it is. Hercules expands the sermon, though, for publication, these three desires, which he states... First, that the churches, which are the schools of Christ, may be stirred up to see what spiritual gifts God has given them and put them into their proper exercise. Second, that all pastors and teachers would look upon it as their duty to instruct those members who are most capable into the knowledge of gospel mysteries. Third, that the members of churches, especially those to whom God has given a good degree of spiritual knowledge, would not always content themselves to be only hearers, but to stir up those gifts in a humble manner and put them in use for the church's edification. But at the heart of the temple repaired was a sermon. Not only did Howe and Collins share the same printer and similar circumstances for publishing their works, they also, contrary to popular opinion, had a very similar view of human learning. In the dedication of the temple repaired, Collins laments the fact that too many churches are choosing pastors based on human learning instead of giftedness by the Spirit. He wrote, Now our brethren of the congregational way, being so sound in their judgment about this point, it is greatly desired that their principle and practice did better harmonize. For I do not think that three instances of those churches throughout London can be given who have for these last 30 years 
past made choice of any for pastors, but such as have had human learning. And there have and there hath been too great a slight put upon such as had it not, though no way inferior in spiritual gifts and graces for the church's edification. Elsewhere, the similarity between Collins and Howe is even more evident. In the midst of his explanation of his own use of the phrase unlearned men, Collins states, But when I say beware of calling unlearned men, I mean such unlearned as Peter speaks of, who rest the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter did not mean by unlearned men, men who wanted or lacked human learning, for then, as one saith, he must of necessity condemn himself, for he was a man in the sense of the great council that wanted this learning, so, must, so that he must lie under that blame which he lays upon others. When Collins writes, Peter did not mean by unlearned men, men who wanted human learning, for then, as one saith, he must of necessity condemn himself, he is referring favorably to Samuel Howe's own comments on Second Peter 3.16 in the sufficiency of the Spirit's teaching. Uh, it's a direct quote. Collins himself likewise held with Howe that God alone, by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, can make men able ministers of the New Testament. Likewise, Howe's distinction between the usefulness of human literature and the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit is also seen in Collins. Collins says, And though it be granted that human literature is very useful for a minister, yet it is not essentially necessary. But to have the Spirit of Christ to open the Word of Christ is essentially necessary. For although it is possible to make an exact translation of the Scriptures out of many learned languages and give an exact grammatical construction of the same, yet if this man be void of the Spirit of Christ, he cannot know or understand the mysteries contained in God's Word. Every rational man will acknowledge the truth of that sentence of the Apostle Paul. As no man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man within him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. This puts me in mind of a saying of a worthy minister at a person's ordination above four and twenty years ago. Though I understood Latin and Greek, philosophy, logic and rhetoric, etc., yet before conversion I was as ignorant of Christ as a wild ass's colt. Clearly, there is more continuity between Collins and Howe than is often thought. There is also, however, an element of discontinuity between these two authors. Collins is living in a different time than Howe and with fresh challenges. He is part of a group of ministers, men such as Hansard Knowles and Benjamin Keach and even William Kiffin, who are still within the broad tradition of Baptists who protest their denouncement by the academic elite but who also recognize a very real problem among their own congregations, namely the absence of capable young men who will carry on the work of the ministry into the next generation. These men continue, that's Keach, Howe, or Keach, Kiffin, Hercules, etc. These men continue to affirm the sole necessity of the Holy Spirit and to decry human learning, but are aware of a certain deficiency in their congregations in the closing decade of the 17th century. And you can see that in a number of places. I don't go into it all here. The Gospel Minister's Maintenance, signed by Collins, etc., all those guys. Uh, the London Assembly, 1692 and 1693, addressed the issue of education of the next generation of ministers and... Where else do you see that? Uh, and in the various works of these men, it pops up from time to time. In the temple repaired, Collins proposes a remedy to this deficiency. 
Therefore, it is greatly desired and would be a very glorious work if all the elders of the church in every city in London would not only be concerned in their own particular congregation for a future ministry, but that the several elders would set apart some time every week for the instructing young men, members of churches, inclined to divine studies. And so in the country, where two or three churches are not far asunder, that all their elders would agree to meet once a month or oftener to hear the gifts that God has given their churches and that their gifts might be discovered, they ought, first of all, to be put upon prayer and then to see what gifts they have for opening the word of God. And this to be done to the end that some may be able to teach others also when we put off this earthly tabernacle. Collins knew that some would object to his proposal by saying, God will take care of his churches and give them pastors after his own heart. But, he's, but this, he says, will be no thanks to the churches who are negligent in their duty in this respect. Instead of waiting for a miracle to supply the lack of, of their own lack of provision for a future ministry, Collins exhorts his fellow pastors to a better logic. We argue with a great deal more judgment, he said, about the concerns of our bodies. We say it is our duty to trust in God to provide for ourselves and families. That is true. But we do not ordinarily neglect the lawful means conducing to that end. The husbandman hopes for a good crop in summer, but still it is in the use of means. He ought to plow and sow his seed and not look for a miracle, but do his endeavor and leave the blessing with God. Thus should we do in concerns of our souls and the churches of Christ. In other words, pastors should do their duty in preparing for a future ministry, but remain dependent upon God for his blessing upon their efforts. Given this concern expressed by Collins for the preparation for the next generation of ministers and his awareness of the very real problem of the absence of capable young men who would carry on the work in the next generation within the particular Baptist churches in England, it is no wonder then that Collins would argue strongly for laborious study while still affirming both the necessity and sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. We may say in this case, as we used to speak about salvation, that we ought to live so holily as if we were to be saved by our living, and yet when we have done all to rely upon Christ and his righteousness. So we should labor in study, as if we should have no immediate assistance in the pulpit, and yet when we have done all to go about our work depending upon God for further assistance as a pastor who preaches week in and week out and who prepares sermons I, I like that a lot in fact i've got a heart beside it here in my paper i love it uh, work hard study hard depend upon the holy spirit and in another place collins warns the churches of his day against calling a scripturally unlearned man as pastor and by the way when collins denounces those who are unlearned he is using the sense in the way that how says that peter used that sense Second Peter 3.16, he said, Let the churches be cautioned for the honor of God, the glory of the cause in their hands, and the good of their own souls, against calling to office an ignorant, unlearned, inexperienced person. The priest's lips should preserve knowledge, and they shall seek the law at his mouth. Pastors are to feed the people with knowledge and understanding. Paul tells the Ephesians when they come to read his writings, they should understand his knowledge in the mysteries of Christ. When the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. It was Jeroboam's sin to make some of the lowest of the people priests. Thus Collins clearly had different concerns than Howe, and therefore a different emphasis in his writing on the topic of the education of ministers. But to assert what Collins or Howe would have written had their historical situations been reversed is beyond our ability to know. Conclusion. There seems to have been two extreme positions. 
on the issue of the education of ministers in the 17th century. Those supporting one position, like John Goodwin, declared formal education, human learning, as absolutely necessary for one to be a minister. Others, like Samuel Howe, stated that no education was necessary, only the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Which side did Hercules Collins take in his work? This is not an easy question to answer. At first glance, Samuel Howe's the sufficiency of the Spirit's teaching does indeed appear to be a grand apology for ignorance, as Wilson said. While Hercules Collins, the temple repaired, set the tone of Baptist emphasis upon education. Upon closer inspection, these words works have much more in common than one might suspect. For example, Howe does not hold all learned men to be excluded from the spiritual meaning of the word. God forbid. Instead, Howe argues that the unlearned can know the word of God apart from human learning. His position is not as extreme as those who would forbid the unlearned from preaching. Howe is simply articulating the classic Baptist position on the issue. As William Cathcart has explained, many in his day, that is Howe's day, represented learning as the chief qualification for the ministry. Baptists never have entertained this opinion, though they regard learning in their pastors as of immense importance and have given more money, perhaps, than any other denomination with their numbers and resources in this country to erect and endow institutions for the education of their ministry. Perhaps then Collins is not refuting Howe, but certain of his own contemporaries who were using Howe as an excuse not to study when he wrote, This doctrine refutes the opinion of those that think it is unlawful to study to declare God's mind and will contemptuously speak against it as if he were to speak by inspiration as the prophets and apostles of old did. Collins is clearly responding to some apology for ignorance, but based on the above evidence, it's probably not Howe's work itself. Instead, Collins seems to be in line with Howe in decrying the necessity of human learning, but he sees the need for the training of ministers in the scriptures in the context of the local church. The 17th century was a time of rapid development for English particular Baptists. One of their growing pains was in the matter of the education of ministers. Most Baptists in the 17th century grew up without the opportunity to pursue education in the great universities of England. Those who were educated looked down upon those who were not. In defending themselves against the attacks of the learned, perhaps some Baptists went too far, but most simply asserted that human learning was not absolutely necessary for a ministry of the word. The qualification of absolute necessity applied only to the aid of the Holy Spirit. Some apparently used this emphasis as an excuse not to study, but by the turn of the 18th century, Baptist views seem to have moderated, as is seen in the writings of Hercules Collins. Collins' call for a ministry well-equipped in the study of the word was the result of a lifetime of seeing Baptist churches failing to produce capable leaders. The temple repaired set the trajectory for the next 300 years uh, of Baptist ministers of the gospel. Thus, an analysis of this debate on the issue of the education of ministers in the 17th century has continuing relevance today.